Okay. Well, let us open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. come to our passage uh, this morning and uh, we spent a lot of time doing a lot of groundwork last week as it relates to um, a less familiar doctrine to us, the local descent of Christ. Uh, this morning we uh, come to the same passage and we see its complementary um, doctrine as it's expressed here by Paul as the local ascent of Christ. And so we have an opportunity to uh, learn from God's word in these things. And so as we do so, we're, we're well to be reminded that we find ourselves here in Ephesians chapter 4 in this, in this pivoting chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians as it relates uh, to the exalted Christ. And here is, it relates to the earthly reality to the exalted Christ, that though Christ in his body uh, resides in heaven, uh, we find that uh, he still reigns in his, exalt in his exalted state here and through his ambassadors, through his church. And so we find that uh, the church's spiritual unity, that which is wrought in the spirit, is to be a visible unity. And so in this section, Paul explains the giving of gifts and their distribution among believers, beginning uh, in verse 4, where he says that uh, there's one body, one spirit. We were called in one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. This tells us that there is common gift, these common gifts uh, of the Spirit in, uh, in this common confession. And yet there are a diversity of gifts also given to accomplish His will. And so as we've been examining this unity, we've seen that it's made up of humility, gentleness, and patience. And it's expressed in love and peace that we are to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Truly, it's founded upon the oneness of our triune God because we are in Christ. We are made able to participate in this spirit wrought unity. The question uh, that is laid before us or continued to be laid before us in this section is that how is it that the spirit will maintain this unity? How is it that Christ will reign in his church, though bodily in heaven? Well, in short, it will be maintained according to the fullness of Christ who has filled all things. And we're going to see the implication, uh, that complementary implication of where though he ascended into the lower parts of the earth, he is now ascended into our far above all heavens. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7 uh, through verse 13. 
But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help now. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your word this morning. We thank you that by your spirit, you illuminate it to us and make it profitable to many ends. So, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. And we may participate in this glory that you have won for us and triumphed over all things for us. And now give us through many gifts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we uh, looked at the descent of Christ last week, cosmologically, consecutively, and Christologically, this week we'll do the same to maintain um, that same approach to the local ascent of Christ. And as we looked at last week, we set out a cosmology of heavens above the earth and under the earth. We spoke of the idea that these locations are related to creature, and so it's appropriate to speak of them spatially, even though uh, we find that we could never go high enough in any type of uh, vehicle or vessel to reach heaven, God's dwelling place, nor could we go low enough in the earth to reach the place of the dead. But this is given to us as creatures spatially so that one, it is accommodated to our understanding and two, we may uh, come to an understanding when scripture refers to above uh, heavens above and the earth and the earth and the and under the earth. We saw that as Christ descended locally to under the earth, to the place of the dead, to Sheol, he went to liberate the souls from Sheol who died in faith prior to the death of Christ. He went and subdued Satan. And finally, he proclaimed his victory in the deepest parts of the abyss over his enemies and those who sought to supplant him. He, go, he went not to suffer and to continue his work of atonement. He went to proclaim the work finished, to proclaim victory over those uh, there kept in those places. And in likeness, uh, he rises from the dead and, and enters into an, another area of cosmology as a biblical cosmology is concerned. He enters into the heavens. It, as a matter of fact, in verse 10, it says, He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens. 
so that he might fill all things. So there's something for us to think about as it relates to now the heavens above and its compartmentalizing or its uh, delineations or distinctions. From Scripture, we find Paul referencing three heavens. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul testifies that he was taken up into the third heaven. Well, that implies that there's a first and a second heaven. And this comes to us with uh, probably a little bit more... Um, I don't know, a, a little bit more acceptance than maybe three levels of Sheol. Well, these three levels of heaven, as one commentary recognized, is that uh, which was according to common enumeration. The first heaven was the atmosphere of the birds and the clouds. The second was the sky in which we see the stars. And the third would be heaven, the dwelling place of God. And so we have the sky above, we have the stars in the heavens, and then we also have heaven itself, this dwelling place of angels and God's glory. This, this place that um, expresses where cre creation creates um, not only spatial recognition, but dimensional recognition, that there is a dimension to creation. And so we find God being described as uh, eternal and immense. He, he cannot be contained. So it would not be appropriate to put God's dwelling place um, as to his being in something that is dimensional. And so we have the heavens above. We have, we have far above all the heavens here is where we find Christ ascending to. In Psalm 19, uh, we can see uh, that's referred. We can see what is referred in Psalm 19, beginning in verse one, that the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. We have both spatial and dimensional language. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the earth. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. So again, in these heavens, there is dimension. In these heavens, there's obviously spatial. It's above. And there is, uh, there is dimensional in the sense that there is a, it was put as a tent for the sun. Obviously, we're speaking uh, language accommodated to man so that as man looks up from earth into the heavens, uh, it is recognized as a tent for the sun. Second Chronicles 6, 18 and 21 is our reference for a heaven beyond the heavens. 
after the temple is built in Solomon's day, he uh, dedicates the temple before the people. And so he gives this uh, speech before the people, this dedication speech. He says in verse 18 of 2 Chronicles 6, But will God indeed dwell with mankind on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Listen to the supplications. This is now verse 21. Listen to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, hear from your dwelling place, from heaven, hear and forgive. There is something here to uh, Solomon's cosmology that puts God in, in his essence as beyond containing, even to the point where when we reference God in heaven, we don't reference heaven as a um, dimensional place where God can be contained. But this heaven is a place of dwelling. This heaven is a, is a place of God's dwelling because eventually uh, the, the tabernacle is dedicated and then the Holy Spirit uh, anoints it with its presence and the in the Holy of Holies is said to be the place where God or God's glory dwells above the mercy seat as a as a mini heaven as a as a as a copy of heaven above. And so here Solomon recognizing that says that that God would hear them from his dwelling place from heaven. And so when Christ ascends, he ascends beyond the clouds. He ascends beyond the stars and of the of the of the uh, greater heavens. He ascends into the very presence of God. And so we have to then account for this because we speak of Christ here as the incarnate son of God, as two natured person of God or two natured person, excuse me, um, that he is very God and very man. So we speak of Christ here and we 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 attend to this as a local ascent of Christ, because where could the son of God, according to his divinity, go where it didn't already exist, as in his essence, uh, he is omnipresent. Certainly nowhere. It is as true, the psalm, where it says, where can I go to the high heavens and to all the way to Sheol, where your presence is, is, is not? He says, I can go nowhere. That, that applies also to the sun. So then there is, uh, there must be something here that Paul is referencing to Christ that is of local, that is related to his human nature. That his human nature now goes to a place that is um, distinct from 
his local descent and also his time on earth. And so it helps us then to look at this not only cosmologically, the places that he will take our human nature, but also consecutively. How did this, how does this work out in time? And, and again, I keep referring to this because it's helpful to us that we often see even within uh, two verses or in the same verse, we see the uh, scripture referring to the history of our salvation and right next to, to the reality or um, the, uh, the logical order of our salvation. And so we find here that Christ ascends. First he ascends, he sits, and then he rules. He first he ascends in Acts uh, chapter 1. We can read, if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're, we're familiar with this passage, but it may be helpful to look at it. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Christ has risen from the dead. He has walked with the disciples for 40 days. Uh, in other places, it's implied that during these 40 days, he has taught them. We make further implication that he taught them, number one, the implication of his coming as it relates to uh, their salvation and certainly as it relates to uh, special revelation. And so he taught them how to interpret scripture. But these 40 days have, have come to an end. And it says that after he had said these things in verse 9, he, speaking of Christ, was lifted up while they were looking on and the cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them into, or excuse me, stood beside them. Then they said, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So we recognize that there is this ascension of Christ. Not only does he resurrect from the dead, right? He goes from death to life. And now as he resurrects, uh, if we're going to speak of it spatially, as he goes from under the earth to back on the earth, the body is resurrected. And so he walks for 40 days in a resurrected body and then ascends into heaven. He does so in a physical reality. That's such that these disciples are watching the body of Christ raise into the air to the point where they can see him no longer. And then two men come or two angels come and testify to his place in heaven. This uh, place in heaven, not only does he ascend from earth, but he ascends to heaven. We consider his as his exaltation. His exaltation is in distinction to his humiliation, to him being brought low. His exaltation is the subsequent glories that he receives after his completion of his humiliation. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 summarize this. Well, I mean, in the previous verses speak of his humiliation. It says in verses 9 and 10, it speaks of his exaltation. For this reason also, God 
God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This idea that Christ is exalted, he ascends and he is exalted. He ascends to the highest place in the heavens or far above all heavens. What is being uh, communicated here by Paul is that Christ takes our human nature above all creation. There is no realm of creation, and we've been talking in the cosmology of creation, the heavens above the earth and under the earth. There is no realm of creation in which Christ is not above, because there's no realm of creation in which Christ has not gone and either been victorious or declared his victory, and then takes finally his place far above the heavens. This is the ascension of Christ, where he ascends above all creation. Well, what takes place in this ascension is not only does he ascend in his exaltation and that he ascends above all creation, is that he then sits at the right hand of the Father. You know from that moment, at least, that we've entered into analogical language. The Father has no hands to sit next to. The Father does not have a body. The Father is spirit, right? So as we speak about the right hand of the Father, this must carry uh, a connotation of something analogical. We are, we are uh, speaking in accommodated language to us so we may understand something of Christ's exaltation. To sit at the right hand as one commentator observes, and I agree, is an honor reserved for the most favored. When the scriptures speak of the right hand of God, it is meant that at, as the right hand among men is the place of honor, power, and happiness, so to sit on the right hand of God is to obtain the place of highest glory, power, and satisfaction. This is the place that Christ locally ascends to and takes our human nature with him, or takes human nature with him. That he sits at the right hand of the Father. The sitting also represents something for us, as it re represents something as to uh, finality, or as to his kingly reign. He's seated, which indicates, uh, or in, in his seated state, he cannot be dethroned. Such that no plot against him will prevail. No weapon, carnal or spiritual, can ever prevail against him. It is this that gives Christianity its stability and power. For Christianity is Christ himself seating or sitting at the right hand of God. Paul said this earlier in his letter. He says, and now we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Why? One, because he goes as our head. Two, he goes in our nature. So he goes and he sits at the right hand of the Father. How immovable and unshakable is the kingdom of Christ if it, in its mediatorial head, exists at the right hand, seated at the right hand of God. 
The seating also moves in our minds to consider what scripture teaches about the seated position is that it's a place of rest. Most of us uh, or most of the um, people in uh, the first century and all the history of scripture really worked while standing. The seat you, when you sat, you rested, you were resting. Hebrews 4.10 tells us something about Christ's rest. And we'll spend a little bit of time uh, expositing this with the help of our good friend, Dr. Uh, our good friend John Owen, as it relates to uh, this verse, because it, uh, he interprets it in a way um, that in disagreement with some other interpreters and maybe in ways that you have thought of it in the past also. In Hebrews 4.10, it says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his work as God did from his. Now, we're going to spend other, uh, uh, other time in Hebrews this morning uh, looking at its connection and how this, by the time we get to 4, um, uh, it's already been established, this idea of Christ's humiliation and exaltation certainly begins with Christ's exaltation in the opening chapters. And so when we get into this idea of rest in four, Paul, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews makes this comment for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Owen says this, he concludes that although many apply this rest to believers, it cannot be supported by the text. Supremely being that what comparison does our rest or a believer's rest from their labors, assumably, have with God resting after creating the world? Because when we rest from our labors, we work in, in some ways no more. When you go and you rest at night, nobody thinks you accomplished something by getting whatever many hours of sleep you got at night. Nobody said, wow, you got a lot done or something was still taking place in your agency during that time. No, there, there really is no comparison because he says that God rested from his own works of creation. One, by ceasing from creating, only continuing all things by his power in their order and propagating them to his glory. So Christ in rests only from his creative work. Creating ex nihilo, creating out of nothing, right? From, from taking what he creates and then forming it into the heavens and the earth. Make, uh, creating everything that is not God. He rests from that as a completion, but he then uh, sits is the, uh, is the other theological implication there in Genesis chapter 1, and then reigns and sustains his creation. The second thing is, is by his respect unto them or refreshment in them as those which set forth his praise and satisfied his glorious design. And so also he rest also must he rest who is here spoken of. So he's saying these two ideas of ceasing from creating and then continuing all things by his power in their order and propagating them to his glory. And then here he, he just says that he is then satisfied. He takes delight. There's 
is there is the reception of 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 uh, praise and delight from his creation. So he says. So this is how then is the one who has entered his rest is to be compared to as God did rest from his. And so we look at Christ, that he must cease from working in like kind. He must suffer no more, die no more, but only continue the work of his grace in the preservation of the new creature and orderly increase and propagation of it by his spirit. So Christ, though, completes his work of atonement. He still is bringing many sons to glory, He's still preserving his church by his spirit, working in his new creation. And then, too, in his delight and satisfaction with which he takes in his works, which Christ Jesus has to the utmost, he sees of the travail of his soul and is satisfied and is in possession of that glory which is set before him while he was at his work. So from what has been spoken, I suppose it will appear plainly to the unprejudiced and impartial minds that it is the person of Jesus Christ that is the subject here spoken of. This idea of Hebrews 4.10 speaking of rest and as it relates to Christ seating at the right hand of the Father is very relevant to us this morning because it's here. It's this rest that we celebrate every Lord's Day when we gather. We proclaim Christ risen and ascending and seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. Where we now, where we in our offering of worship offer up a worship to his delight and satisfaction for we are his new creation we who are here we look to the first fruits of the new creation in Christ and we celebrate it this Lord's day so Christ has been seated at the right hand of the Father. And now we find that he also rules from this place. This is called the session of Christ, where he rules over all creation. We don't have uh, the time this morning to, to go uh, at least ex explain it scripturally to say how he rules over even the unregenerate. Yeah, he rules over both kingdoms for even though we understand there is a kingdom of man and a kingdom of God we proclaim Christ as Lord over all though he rules over the kingdom of man through different administrators different ministers as we read in Romans 13 he rules over his church with other ministers and he rules for different purposes so we'll lay that aside this morning but only recognize that Christ is above as ascended far above all the heavens and there he rules over all creation there is no shadow in Christ ruling where he does not rule Ephesians 1.22, uh, if you want to go back to Ephesians now, uh, it helps us understand this or, or pointed us towards this when we went over it early or on last year. 
And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So there it gives the purpose. How is Christ ordering all things? Well, he's ordering all things towards the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so as a benevolent ruler in ruling all things towards his church and ruling over his church specially, he provides gifts to men. John Gill says that these he received in man in human nature, in that nature which he ascended to heaven, in the man that is known above as, say, the Jews. And these he bestows on men, even rebellious ones, that the Lord God might dwell among them and make them useful to others. Wherefore, the Jews have no reason to quarrel with the version of the apostle as they do, who instead of received gifts for men, and speaking of his uh, interpretation of Psalm 68, as they do, who instead of received gifts from men, renders it, gave gifts to men, since the Messiah received in order to give and gives in consequence of his having received them. That is to say, there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. So we see that Christ rules, and this is the session of Christ where he rules over all creation, but specifically over all creation as unto the church, and so specially in the church. And here, this is what Paul is talking about. And we would do... A disservice to our passage this morning as we address it cosmologically and now consecutively that we wouldn't address it also Christologically as Paul does so in, util in his utilization of Psalm 68. So turn again with me to Psalm 68 as we look at this psalm again this morning in order to see where Paul now uh, has taken what he has learned from Christ, what he has learned in the revelation of Christ to then now interpret Scripture according to the now new light of Christ and so he's able to remove the veil light has come upon the shadows the anti-type has arrived or the, t the type has arrived uh, for the anti-type so Psalm 68 we, where he picks up is in verse 18 you have ascended on high you have led captive your captives you have received gifts among men even among the rebellious also that the Lord God may dwell there previously in the psalm it's established that there's this mountain of Bashan that it's considered a many peaked mountains and this mountain uh, looks with envy at that which is God's, at that which is God's mountain. That, that there is something then that the, that, this, uh, that the Lord then descends to this mountain and then conquers and takes captives and leads them up to the mountain of God. We, within the psalm, we see that this conqueror is the Lord. And we see this Lord acting as prophet, priest, and king. 
as prophet in verse 22, it says, the Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that your foot may shatter them in blood. The tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies. This conquering Lord proclaims truth, proclaims the word of the Lord. And so acts as a prophet in verse 24, the same Lord, the same conqueror acts as a priest in verse 24. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king into the sanctuary. This conqueror, the Lord, acts as priest for he leads his people into the sanctuary. The very dwelling place of God as king, as it's been, as it, we saw in verse 24, we see in other places that he conquers as, as the role of king, he conquers his enemies in verse 21. Surely God will shatter the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. In other places, it's definitely explicated that God is king here. So this conqueror, the Lord acts as prophet, priest, and king. So we look then as we take cues from Paul, we can look then at this uh, idea of Christ's local ascent Christologically through these offices that the mediator possessed as prophet, priest, and king. First, as prophet. And James Dodd says that since his departure, speaking of Christ, he has not ceased to be the teacher and the guide of all who receive him. His word abides with us. And his first gift to the church after he rose was the Holy Ghost, who came to lead men to all truth. When the Lord ascended on high, he received gifts for men, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It is in him that all Christian teaching originates, and through his spirit that it takes hold of men's hearts. He sends the same spirit who raised him from the dead to provide ongoing resurrection life and to enable this growth. He gives these gifts. So if we were to look at these gifts that are provided, we can see that as, a, as in his office of prophets, that these gifts would work through his word, through the word of Christ. Second Corinthians 520, Paul says that therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as through God, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We've read many times Hebrews chapter one, where it says in, in many ways in many various ways and long ago, he spoke through the fathers. And now in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And there is a present tense to that idea. There's a present reality to that. So we see that uh, Christ provides apostles to record the word of Christ. He provides prophets to foretell the word of Christ. He provides evangelists to spread the word of Christ. He provides pastors to minister the word of Christ. He provides teachers to expound the word of Christ. He does all this in his office of prophet in his his place at the right hand 
of the Father on high. He has not ceased to be the prophet of his people. As priest, Christ's priestly work is twofold, consisting of his satisfaction for sin upon earth and his intercession in heaven. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, we read this often in our Lord's Supper reading, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So again, when Christ appeared, this is his incarnation. This is his, his uh, priestly work upon the earth. He doesn't then go into heaven and cease being a priest. But he goes in the heaven, taking his own blood, taking the satisfaction for sin, which is through his own blood. And then he makes intercession through his blood on our behalf. Hebrews 7, 23 and 25. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He makes satisfaction for sin upon the earth, and in heaven he intercedes on our behalf. This is his priestly work in his ascended position. Prophet, priest, and king. Having spoiled his enemies on the cross, he further makes a public triumphal show of them in his own person, which is a second act. As the manner of the Roman Empire emperors was in their great triumph to ride through the city in the greatest state and have all the spoils carried before them and the kings and nobles whom they have taken. And this did Christ at his ascension, plainly manifesting by his open show of him that he had spoiled and fully subdued them. That is provided by our another good friend that you should get to know, Thomas Goodwin. But such in the sense that Christ's resurrection from the dead was his proclamation of victory over, over the grave. Over that which anything could be accounted to Satan or the fallen angels. His resurrection and then his further then ascension into heaven is his proclamation of triumph. It is kingly proclamation of triumph. When by death he, he overcame him who had the power of death, when he rose from the grave and announced to his disciples that all power was given him in heaven and on earth, he asserted his kingly office. And when God, having raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, all things were put under his feet. He was 
given to be head over all things to the church and receive dominion and glory and a kingdom. And he must reign all his or he must reign until all his enemies are under his feet. To which of the angels said to me at any time, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. There a commentator just puts together, he threads together these verses that we've been going over to see God's kingly reign. So that we would see now the ascension of Christ secured and declared his triumph. The glory of Christ was foreshadowed by the triumphal procession of Jehovah to Zion in Psalm 68. The captives of the Lord of salvation, the redeemed, sin, death, Satan, the riches of the Lord of salvation, gifts not of gold, but of spiritual life, endowment and reward. The descent and ascension of Christ revealed the universal character of his triumph. There is no sphere of the universe he did not enter, and there is nothing that remains unaffected by his influence. So we can make some concluding comments this morning. We're going to see these concluding comments under submission, storehouse, and security. First submission, behold the risen Christ and now ascended king who sits above all creation. There is a king above all creation. There is one who is Lord over all, who is the anointed one. So turn from your rebellion and see that the son offers his cheek to kiss. It's with great providence that we sang Psalm 2 this morning. Kiss the son, that's in his anger and his wrath, right? He offers his cheek to kiss in friendship and not judgment. For he has been subjected to every temptation and yet sin not. He has bore every judgment within himself and was even laid in the grave and descended to the dead for your sake. So turn from your rebellion. Repent. See, receive Christ as your king now. For when he comes again in the clouds, he will come to redeem his church or to, to bring his church to where he's at. But he comes also to judge those who have forsaken him. That's why Paul is, if I finish his words in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, we read 21 says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For you believers, we have a storehouse and security. From where do these gifts come from? It says that he gave gifts. Where is this storehouse of treasure? It is with Christ and in heaven. So that we would look not to this world and what it can provide, but see our Savior, a mediator. And that our grip upon this world would be loosened. 
Listen to Spurgeon's reflection. He says, reflect yet again that from the hour our Lord left it, speaking of the world, this world has lost all charm to us. If he were in it, there, would, there were no spot in the universe which would hold us with stronger ties. But since he has gone up, he draws us upward from it. The flower is gone from the garden. The first ripe fruit is gathered. Earth's crown is lots its brightest jewel. The star is gone from the night. The dew is exhaled, exhaled from the morning. The sun is eclipsed at noon. Joseph is no more in Egypt, and it is time for Israel to be gone. No, earth, my treasure is not here with you. Neither shall my heart be detained by you. May the reality of our ascended, risen and ascended Christ be a loosening and lifting reality. That where he is gone, he takes us also. That we look no longer upon that which uh, we can see and touch and feel and put hope in that, but we put our hope in the one who provides the gifts and the one whom has the storehouse of treasure. Finally, may we see in our risen and ascended Christ security. Again, Spurgeon was helpful for me. He says, reflect how secure is our eternal inheritance now that Jesus has entered into the heavenly places. Our heaven is secured to us for it is in the actual possession of our legal representation who can never be dispossessed of it. Christ has gone to the heavenly holy of holies. There is no longer then now another day of atonement that continually happens year after year for that has been done. And in doing so, Christ takes possession of his inheritance. And so if our legal head is gone, if in a legal standing you had somebody take possession of an inheritance, it is as good as yours. And you can never be dispossessed of it. And so from that lesser to the even greater security that we have in Christ, may we not despair that we will not receive what Christ has won for us. Let us let the words of Philippians 3, beginning of verse 7, ruminate as I close this morning. But whatever things were to gain me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom have I suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. 
Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning. We give praise to the Son also, who has ascended on high, who has taken our nature to where it never was, who is a son by nature, so that we may be adopted sons and daughters, who sits as prophet, priest, and king. Oh, Lord, may you work greater assurance and encouragement in us this morning through your word. May this assurance provide us by your spirit, the energy and the efforts and the perseverance to persevere while we wait your coming. May those that have heard this, Lord, we ask for those that do not know you and have not put their faith in you. We ask that for those that are confused that this joy of gaining Christ and being able to see the things of this world is rubbish. We ask, Lord, that you would open their hearts as you did Lydia's, that they may receive with joy the kingship of Christ and we may further rejoice at his dominion over darkness we ask these things in Christ's name Amen